Hello and welcome back to Primetime FM and part two of my interview with Nick Triplo, author of Getting Carter, Ted Lewis and the Birth of Britnois. We take up our discussion about Ted Lewis's work with his second crime novel, Plender. So by way of background to our chat, here's a little fill-in on the novel. Plender is set in Hull and it's about two guys who grew up in Barton on Humber and have very different paths in life. Brian Plender always envied Peter Knott for his good looks, his popularity and his charm. And years later, Plender is a PI with a racket in extortion and blackmail. Knott is in a marriage and tied to his wife's wealth and is a rising star in the local scene. He certainly can't afford scandal. When Plender sees him out one night in a club with a girl who's clearly not his wife, he follows him. What he witnesses allows Knott to fall into Plender's hands. So far it might sound like the kind of thing you're familiar with, but here's where it differs very dramatically. Again, this is about the relationship between the two men and a reflection on Ted Lewis's own circumstances and character. It's autobiographical. The thing about Plender is that while he's a vile and horrible man, you can't get to like Knott either because as his character is revealed, we find that he may actually be worse than Plender in the first place. You can have no sympathy for him either. This is Ted's imaginary world, and it's bleak. So back to Nick. Well, then the next novel that comes along is Plender. Yeah. Um, which he got, I think you said, a £5,000 advance for. Something like that, yeah. Yeah, well... Which seems to me quite a lot of money, actually. At the yeah, time. I mean, I think off the back of of Carter, um, his agent, his then agent Toby Eady, was able to negotiate a very, very good deal with Michael Joseph, um, which remained throughout the nineteen seventies. And Ted was paid extremely well, basically an annual fee to produce a book. Yeah, right. The thing about Plender is that it's an even darker book than Jack's Return Home, if you like, because there's not the tiniest drop of redemption here. So, yeah, so you've got these two characters. The blackmailer starts off, you think, you know, this is a bad guy. Yeah. And then you it flips because you realise the guy he's blackmailing is worse. Yeah. And and I think, again, as, as you just said about um, Jack Carter and his brother Frank, the two characters in Plender, Brian Plender and Peter mm-hmm. Knott, and, and throughout his, his, his sort of writing life, Ted's often looking at dualities he's looking at two sides of the same coin or he's, he's looking at the the kind of two possibilities of a, that a life might take then mm. that's a running a theme that kind of runs throughout a lot of his writing and he's, really comes together in gbh at the definitely, end yeah, yeah absolutely yeah. no i couldn't agree more so the next novel is billy rags and just by way of introduction i'm going to read the blurb on that one before we talk about it It's the 1960s and Billy Kraken is a hard man to keep locked up. An austere and troubled childhood has given way to a life as a hardened criminal and now status as one of the most feared prisoners in England. He's been moved from one maximum security prison to the next. Guards and inmates alike fear and begrudgingly respect the powerfully built Kraken. But a life doing his time, even as a minor celebrity, isn't the one he wants. A girlfriend and a child await Kraken on the outside and he'll stop at nothing to get to them. But while plotting his escape, he crosses a powerful mobster who vows to make Kraken's life hell. Now, this is a very different book then because Billy Braggs is is essentially John McVicker's story. That's true, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's fundamentally John McVicker's story. The, the background to it is 
still a little bit murky. Mm. Um, there are still um, bits and pieces that people have told me that they've asked me not to talk about. Ah, uh, okay, right. Um, but the nuts and bolts of it are John McVicker's deposition that was used in his trial yeah. was written up and given to Ted's agent, Toby Eady. Right. With a view to being novelised. Um, as a means to make money for John McVicker's common law wife and son who were living, obviously, right, yeah. out on the outside. Perhaps I should make it clear for some of the listeners that uh, John McVicker was one of the most notorious robbers, one of the most notorious criminals of his day. So why did the transcript come to Ted then? Why it came to Ted, why he took it on, what his reasons were for doing it, I don't know. Mm. But what Billy Rags has become, on the one hand, it's it's very closely linked to McVicker's own story. Um, you know, there's a cigarette paper between the two at, mm. at various points. But what it also is, is inherently it's a true crime story. It's a, yeah. it's a true crime novel. At yeah. a time when nobody was doing that. That's that's one of the key points. Yeah, absolutely fascinating from that um, aspect. I grew up on that as a teenager, the Roger Daltrey film in 1980. Mm. As you're saying, when this novel came out, McVicker's own memoir hadn't actually been published at that point, I no. think. McVicker, so, McVicker was still in prison at that point. still inside, yeah. yeah. So then we've got the film, and the film, of course, is very romanticised, and the last thing in the world this one is is romanticised, Billy Rags. Yeah. It's, uh, but... It actually is his own story. He, he, you know what you said there about the fact that it's sort of based in all these real facts, if you like, and the real life of John McVicker. Mm. But it is so much its own story. Yeah, it's quite incredible in that context. I mean, he really makes it a work of art. I know he seemed to get um, the claustrophobia of him. I mean, you'd almost swear this guy'd been in prison for twenty years. The way he talks yeah. about it. He gets the claustrophobia, the institutionalization, you know, the casual violence, the sense of time that is different. And of course, this is a different novel for him too, as well, because most of it's within a confined space. And we've been used to working with bigger landscapes, but he still manages to get an understanding of that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it is an extraordinary novel. Um, the, the claustrophobia of it is something that, um, that struck me given the, both get Carter and Plender very much of the kind of humble landscape mm. to take us inside in sort of what, what is essentially Durham D wing high security. Yeah. The high security. Yeah. Early seventies to be surrounded by people who are, again, their names have changed, but it's the Richardsons and it's um, yeah. Ian, Ian Brady is in the high security wing. So when there's a riot, it's Brady's files that they go and get, which apparently mm. Is that's what happened with McVicker that they they uncovered a lot of the stuff that um, that Ian Brady had been um, you know was in there was, for that people yeah. didn't know at the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so it, it's in a way it's quite shocking, and in a way it's it's again this is 1973, mm. um, and it and it punches its weight. It very much punches his way, I think. Oh, it does. It, no, I, I agree with you because reading it, I mean, I didn't read Billy Rags, you know, originally. Obviously, I read it just recently, mm. and it still has that punch. 
Mm. And when a novel can still do that, then you know it survived the test of time. One of the things that struck me was it's interesting the way he explains that life on the outside isn't much better than life on the inside because, of yeah. course, when, when he gets out, he's confined anyway because the police are looking for him. So it just winds up being claustrophobic inside and outside. And he was very good at conveying that, I suppose, hopelessness in a sense, you know, that, that goes with it. But and, uh, it's kind of the, at the end, or not to, you know, towards the end when he's when Vickers out or Billy Rags is out, mm. it, it's that kind of domestic claustrophobia that's worse. Yes, for for him, it's worse because yeah. he, he can't, you know, he can't be himself. He can't be the man he knows he is. When, when he when he can't do his work when he can't yeah absolutely he creates a fascinating i mean billy Mc, billy kraken is a hell of a character yeah he's a schemer planner manipulator um he's a very intelligent character in a lot of ways as well it makes you wonder because it, it, it also reminds you that villains are not different they're like us they have ambitions they want yeah. to love they want to have things in life just the same as we do and it kind of reminded me a lot about that one of the things that struck me about this novel um, and this, for me, is an important part of what I think is relevant with Brit Noir and with, with uh, Ted Lewis's work is there's a bit in the novel also sort of hints the system always wins. Yeah. And I think he gets institutionalization. Like we talk a lot about institutional stuff now, institutional corruption, institutional racism. I think there are elements of that in his novels where he gets that kind of systematic thing in a way that an awful lot of British crime fiction doesn't. Yeah, yeah. No, I'd agree with that. It's, yeah. it's, de it's definitely, um, I think Ted had spoken to enough people and been around enough people who'd been through the system to, you know, to have that pretty much drilled in. Mm. Um, and I think there's a real darkness in that that you just don't get in a lot of British crime fiction, yeah. you know. Um, and that, that for me is where I think that when we get on to talk about it, I think there's influences that Ted's had on people. Um, I think there are some who directly follow and I think they get that. And there are yeah. others who just sort of follow it, a, a sort of broadly dark path, but it's not quite the same thing at all. So let's look at Jack Carter's law then now, Jack Carter's law. So this is the follow up to Jack's return home, but of course it's a prequel. And given what we've said earlier about Jack and when we were talking about that novel and the film Get Carter. Um, so again, I'll give you the blurb just as by way of background. Um, London, the late 1960s. It's Christmas and Jack Carter is the top man in a crime syndicate headed by two brothers, Gerald and Les Fletcher. He's also a worried man. The fact that he's sleeping with Gerald's wife, Audrey, and that they plan on someday running away together with a lot of the brothers' money doesn't have Jack concerned. Instead, it's the informant, one of his own men, that's got him losing sleep. The grass has enough knowledge about the firm not only to bring down Gerald and Les, but Jack as well. And Jack doesn't like his name in the mouth of that sort. Right, so one of the essential differences about this novel, of course, is that if he had any justification for revenge because of his brother, because of his daughter in Jack's return home, and we kind of shot a hole in that theory, there's absolutely no justification, no talk of family in this novel. I mean... Yeah, I think, I mean, as a prequel, mm. which obviously, once um, once Mike Codgers had had Michael Caine shot on Black Hole Beach, mm. you know, there there was, you know, Ted wasn't going to write a sequel, so it had to be a prequel. And I think 
what you get with Jack Carter's law is Jack doing what he does in London, mm. you know, for the, for the family that he works for. And there's a very real sense, you know, this is around the sex industry. This is around mm-hmm. yeah. being an enforcer for, for two kind of Cray-like or Richardson-like brothers um, and looking for a grasp within the, the sort of family, the crime setup. Mm-hmm. And he's he's uncompromising, he's unlikable, he treats people appallingly, but he's Jack Carter in, in yeah. a way that there, there is no moral justification for it. There is simply a business imperative to get the job done and find out who the grass is. I mean, is he a psychopath in that sense? Yeah. Yeah. I think so, yeah. A misogynist and a whole bunch of other things you could, uh, yeah, I mean, you you know, could add on, yeah. Th- that's one of the issues that I think quite a lot of people find very difficult to deal with. I find it difficult to deal with is, you know, Jack is a misogynist. I don't mm. know that Ted was completely, um, he wasn't exactly a new man himself. If No, if right. Respect, but, I, you know, I, I think he gives... He gives his worst nature to Jack. I think for me, the, the thing about that is, you know, it's out there in society. It's not like he invented this character or came up with something that doesn't exist. You know, I, I don't like the idea that we shy away from these sorts of things. No. You know? the, these and were the type of people they were. What I'd say is that, you know, Ted spent most of the mid to late 60s and early 70s working in the film industry in Soho. Mm. And, yeah, and the real film industry and the sex film industry, yeah, of course, were incredibly closely linked. Very, very close. And if mm. you look at, um, you know, I've, I spoke to quite a few people for the for the biography who were working in the, in and around the film industry at, the, at that time. And if you look at the independent in, independent television, particularly mm-hmm. uh, companies like ITC, people that were making the Sweeney, people who would who were kind of independently you know making films the the criminal underworld was never that far away yeah absolutely and and a lot of that crossover and you know even even um michael klinger who produced get carter he'd, he'd run what were loosely termed continental cinemas in soho yes right you know he'd been part of that industry so ted was part of that industry and i think a lot of what his the way he received that and the way he saw people behaving around women, that's what goes into the books. Mm. So again, it's grounded in truth. It's all grounded in truth. Otherwise it wouldn't be there. Yeah. No. And that, that's something that you keep coming back to as you read, you, you get that sense that it is the real streets and it is, I mean, what, what I suppose one of the things is with Ted is that he never looks away. There's no flinching. Whereas with a lot of writing, you get that. And for instance, you got that a lot with the TV writing. Yeah. They talk about themes, but then they find ways of not talking about themes almost in a sense, don't they? Certainly in those days. He, he, he doesn't bulk from it. And again, that's to me, that's what sets him aside. That's what's, what makes him, what makes him a, a landmark author is that I don't see it. I haven't seen read anybody else who did that. Yeah. Not yeah. in crime fiction, not before him. No, not that direct. Not that direct and not that uncompromising in terms of the, the subject matter that he that he'd take on. Mm. 
Just before we move on, I want to read a couple of sentences to you. They come from the novel. There's nothing exceptional about them, except the way that they reveal how Ted observes life and how he sees things, how he understood things changing and at the same time staying the same. There's an awful lot of observing streets and interiors and how that sets the mood in this novel. I walk up the steps on the redesigned bar on Waterloo Station. It's all carpets and ice if you want it and soft lighting and smart colours, but it still hasn't lost any of the British Rail tradition. It still manages to give the impression of dirt and unemptied ashtrays and tat. It always will, whatever they do. It's a very simple couple of sentences, but it's so eloquent. Ted's next three novels really just don't manage quite to get to the standard of the ones we've been talking about today. So we're going to leave out The Rabbit, which was 1975, Bolt, which was 1976, Jack Carter and the Mafia Pigeon, which was 1977. I mean, if you're a completist, you certainly want to catch up with those, but they're not Ted Lewis's finest work. They're not the highlight of Ted's career, let's say. No. no. So let's move on to GBH, the novel I consider to be, and I think a lot of people consider to be, his absolute masterpiece. And again here, I'll just read you the blurb, which will give you some idea of the book we're talking about. In London, George Fowler heads a lucrative criminal syndicate that specialises in illegal pornography. Fowler is king, with a beautiful woman at his side and a swanky penthouse office, but his world is in jeopardy. Someone is undermining his empire from within, and Fowler becomes increasingly ruthless in the pursuit of an unknown traitor, trusting an even smaller set of advisers. Juxtaposed with the terror and violence of Fowler's last days in London, is the flash-forward narrative of his hideout bunker in a tiny English beach town, where he skulks during the off-season, trying to salvage his fallen empire. Just as it seems possible for Fowler to rise again, another trigger may cause his total, irreparable unravelling. Um, GBH, on the other hand, is Swan Song. It is a masterpiece. I mean, why would you say it was a masterpiece? Um... I mean, for that reason that I've just said, really, which is it, it, it takes that subject matter and writes it in such a way that nobody else had written before. Mm-hmm. Nobody else had been that direct, that uncompromising. Um, it's, it's, the, it's a kind of psychological drama, which, and it's set on the East Coast of Lincolnshire in, in a part of the world that, you know, in all likelihood will have been swallowed by the ocean within 70 or 80 yeah. years. And it's a very bleak place for a very bleak story. That That's an interesting point. I mean, that's, we've talked about landscape to some extent in, in a, um, in a general way in the general, in the novels, but um, very specifically here he uses the landscape as a kind of malign influence in the book, mm-hmm. if you like, doesn't he? It's one of those, it's the sort of thing, actually, that people are so familiar with now with Scandinoir, yeah. where the weather and the landscape seems to be such an important part of how you build the atmosphere. Ted was way ahead doing that again, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it's one of the things I, I said, I've said this a long, long time ago, that when you compare, and I, uh, Wallander was my kind of introduction to Scandinoir quite a few right, years yeah. ago. And the that landscape is very, very similar to Lincolnshire's landscape and to the to a little bit less to the East Riding of Yorkshire, mm. but definitely to Lincolnshire. Wide open skies, wide open spaces. You know, the elements are, you know, you are kind of, un- they come straight down from the Baltic and there's nothing that gets in the way. 
and so that part of the coast and that this part of the world is is very much it feels like that sometimes it feels that bleak it feels that that gray and the sky can be quite overwhelming mm. yeah um and I, and i think what ted does with gbh is to take that i mean he it's based on he moved out to that part of the world in 1975 right and lived on the coast for a couple of years and at the time he was writing film stuff for zed cars and doctor who and um, i think he went there to escape but i think he found himself there Mm. and i think that inner voice that was troubling him and had been troubling him became louder when he was there and i think gbh is the result of that I think it's somebody who knows that their problems and in Ted's case, his drinking was taking him only one way. And I think he knew it then. So in a sense, did he almost know this would be the last book, if you like? Well, I mean, his last published book. Yeah. But Mm. he was writing something else. Right. Yeah. He'd, he'd written, he'd written, um, I've never seen it, but he'd written, um, started to write a story about the Scunthorpe Steel families. Right. And he'd also he'd had plans for another, for a serial killer novel, a series of serial killer novels um, that um, I don't think ever got beyond the planning stage. But this, I, I, by the end, I'm pretty sure he knew it was his last. Mm. And if you read that, I don't think it was, reviewed hardly anywhere but the the one place where you know, he was interviewed in the local paper mm-hmm. in the scunthorpe telegraph and it, the interviewer just wants to talk about get carter right yeah so and this is you know this is ted's greatest novel he yeah, had, yeah. He, knew it. he did know that he did think it was the best thing he'd he written. understood that yeah he definitely did yeah yeah. And, you know, I, I found out relatively recently, a couple of years ago, that he wrote it in six weeks. It's remarkable. It's it's a truly remarkable book in a lot of ways. But one of the things is that, as you say, I didn't read it until last year when No Exit Press bought it out again in yeah. a new edition. And I am still stunned by it, you know, still absolutely yeah. knocked back. And I, I, I liked rereading, you know, the Jack Carter novel. Um, but this was just something else. This This really is another level. And it, it comes, I think, partly from this creation of George Fowler, hmm. his relationship with Gene. Yeah. And, and those points that you were bringing out, actually, that earlier about um, the dichotomies that are in the book. Th- this seems to be a culmination of all the things he's been working on before, where he suddenly gets them all. They're almost perfect in this book, yeah. you know, that balancing that you get. Um, and I think from that point of view, it also has what I would call a poetic ending. I don't know if that makes sense, but where... Uh, sort of everything leads up to the point where it couldn't possibly be anything else. Yeah. And yet again, it's very different to what you might have expected from another novelist, I suppose. It is. Um, I don't, I don't really want to give too much away. No, so you're right. I've let us down. No, that you're right. That's a cul-de-sac. Yeah. It's silly to do that. Yeah. You, you don't want to give too much away because we, we don't want to tell there people. There is a story end. there. Which yeah, is, but uh, but you see, you understand what I mean about the, this kind of poetic ending that, that yeah. sort of comes with it. Um, yeah, perhaps we better just move on. Did he? Did he then sort of know that he was writing for posterity? 
Um, no, I don't. I don't think he did. I don't. Right. I don't think it was written thinking this is going to be my last novel or that I'm writing forever or whatever. I think. I think with GPH, the way that manifests itself is, I really don't care. I am going to write the book that I want to write. Mm. I think prior to that, is he'd written um, Jack Carter and the Mafia Pigeon. Yes, right. I'm pretty sure he wrote because he had to deliver a book mm. and he thought he need, you know, he might as well do another Jack Carter novel and what the hell because it'll sell more if it's got Carter's name. Well, that that's an interesting point because obviously the one thing he did in the first uh, instance after the film came out of Get Carter, he didn't decide to write a series of uh, books. And I know and I, I spoke to when I spoke to his family they they were sort of fairly um, categorical that he really didn't want to write any mm. prequels. I think did, you said in, in Getting Carter, you said at one point actually that he was kind of sick of Jack by the time he was writing the book almost. You can kind of tell that in the yeah, quality I, of the writing. I mean, it's, it's almost self-defeating. It's almost, yeah. it's like he's, he's, he's trying to mess with the myth. Right. He's trying to break it, I think, in Matthew yeah. Pigeon. If he'd been writing today, do you think they would have only sort of given him a contract, perhaps if he'd agreed to do volumes two and volumes three right at the start, sort of thing. Yeah, I don't know. Um, so I don't. You know, what do you think he'd be published was, was today? Unlikely That's a... hit, you know, get Carter hmm. when it first came out. It was a pretty unlikely that it that it would be a, a hit, and really, it wasn't that big. Hmm. It was an X. It was sort of castigated by the by the a lot of the press for its violence and for, for everything else. Um, yeah, I suppose I you know, tend it, to, you know, you tend to rewrite history a little bit, don't you? In with our view now of how classic and how important it is. Yeah, right. I mean, it was. It wasn't. It didn't. It didn't get a, a TV showing mm. for years and years. Right. Um, and it wasn't in the public consciousness as much as it is now up until. Um, the 90s mm. i tell you what i do find doing the podcast you know is that um, an awful lot of american authors when i talk to them about influences now a lot of people say back ted lewis yeah and again that's that's down to paul oliver and soho press and paul's reissues in 2013 mm. 14 um and um i think um jim salas has name checked him a few times yeah right um oh god other people have i'm trying to remember the name the guy that wrote wrote a petition max collins what? allen yeah max allen collins that's max it. allen collins yeah 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 Ma and max has mentioned him a few times um so so there's a lot that you know there's lots of people there who are who are kind of who know him now who mm -hmm. didn't before who didn't he probably didn't a decade ago um I was wondering, you know, I t it's an idle thing. And actually, I think it's a bit silly, really. I was wondering about how he would have been if he survived. He kind of had this classic pulp noir life, you know, unfortunately taken too early. But um, I don't think it, it, it's pointless talking about him having this longevity of a career, you know, and he, he never would have created a series. But the point is, for instance, with somebody like Mozart, you get what you get. Yeah. If you've taken the fact that he was a, pretty weedy sort of character in some ways out of it the great artist would have gone at the same time so and with ted it's just that these demons and the artistic talent and everything else are all bound up in one 
I mean, I think if if you if you look at crime fiction in the nineteen eighties, mm. and you know, that's that's a very difficult period to be writing crime. Mm. Um, there aren't that many. You can write thrillers. There, there are plenty of thriller yeah, writers, yeah. but actual crime fiction. It's you know, there's obviously there's PDJs yeah. and but those, it's mostly spy fiction and yeah. um, serial killer stuff, that yeah. sort of thing. Until, took over, isn't it? until Derek Raymond's factory novels, yeah. At which point, obviously, you know, he acknowledged Lewis's influence, particularly GBH's influence on what he was writing. Yeah, I mean, I see a lot of that influence now. I think that, as I said earlier, that we could, for instance, take Derek Raymond's black novel. Yeah. And say that there are writers who I think write in that vein now, you know, who've definitely followed on from Ted Lewis. I, I would put Ken Brown, actually, the Irish writer in there, yeah. um, although he's rarely mentioned. But Mark Timlin and Alan Guthrie and writers like that, Kathy Unsworth, you know. Yeah. But there are also writers who, who, who Jake Arnott, I suppose, Joseph Knox. There are writers who write um, and it, there's an influence there. And it, it might even be by osmosis. In fact, from what you've said, it's quite possible that it is actually more by absorbing from other writers writing and it just knocks on than it is from actually knowing Ted Lewis directly. But anybody who writes kind of dark British fiction, you can't help feeling that there's an element of Ted Lewis in it. Yeah. I, I mean, some acknowledged, um, David Peace um, mm. has been yeah. you know, very forthright um, uh, of all of those kind of writers, David Peace name checked Ted early on in his career. Um and um Get Carter was and I think GBH was on his dad's bookshelves and he mm. certainly picked them up early. Um and the Red Riding Quartet was was very much uh the the, the first nineteen seventy four was was very much um David Peace looking to write a Ted Lewis yeah. style crime noir social realist novel which obviously is a classic of that kind. Yeah, that's interesting. So I was going to say you've got the new novelist, Joe Thomas. Yes. Um, and Joe Thomas riffs on David Peace. Yeah. And thereby Ted Lewis. So it sort of does follow down the line, doesn't it? And I, I think the other guy who does that brilliantly is um, Owen McNamee. Mm. And his novel, The Ultras, The Resurrection Man, and The Blue yes, Trilogy right. are very much of, of, of that kind of completely don't look away tell yeah. the story allow yourself that kind of literary um ambition and style to pull it off um and so you know there are people who are doing that and they, you know obviously kathy as well who who's um bad penny blues is just a, a remarkable British it is a remarkable novel, novel. Yeah. for me it's one of those london novels as well there are some novels and yeah. they just they just identify the place they're in, you know, they just they are the place. And yeah. Kathy certainly fits in with that. I might add um, Adrian McKinty, actually, the Irish novelist to that. And I read one recently, Amen Allonge, which is um, a gangster thriller set in London. And it's not, you know, it's not directly influenced by Ted, but you know, it's in there. You mm. can get a sense of, of the, the way the story goes, you know, that it's built up around characters who've come through the stories of Ted. And it's, and it's obviously, you know, the, the film the film is the the, the cultural landmark. The yeah. novel the novel isn't because that's the twentieth century for you. But mm. in terms of you know 
the, the film lifts great chunks from the novel. And, yes. and, you know, it owes a lot to that novel, as, as Mike Hodges has acknowledged so himself. So, you know, there are those links there. There are those threads there that that simply weren't there before. And, it's you know, that's the brilliant thing about it is that we we kind of take the writers that came before us, we stand on their shoulders and yes. we make something new. And that's yeah. what we're about. Which goes back to what you said at the start, actually, is that as British writers or as a British sort of reading public, in a sense, we're not very good at making those connections. We're not. And, it, and it's a tradition we really, really should be prouder of, I think. Mm. Yeah, and no, I couldn't agree more. Where would you say then, if we look at Billy Rags and we look at um, Jack Carter's Law, where would you rank them? I mean, I suppose for me, GBH, it is special. It's, yeah. it's really on its own. Then I think you've got Jack's Return Home. Yeah. But these two don't sit very far below no, that. No, you know, these I mean, are still I, very, very good novels, these two. I pretty much agree with that. I, I think um, GBH stands um, stands apart from pretty much everything else that we've mm. written around that time, in particular, not just as a crime novel, but as a novel. Yes, yes. You know, as, as, a, as a piece of, of, of yeah. you know, literary fiction, it's amazing. Um Jack Carter's Law, Get Carter, definitely. But the, yeah, these two and Plender aren't far behind. Plender, of course, yes. So those those would be the sort of, if you've read GBH and you've read Get Carter, Billy Rags, Jack Carter's Law and Plender would be the next stop. Yeah, and they're all available in these new editions, so that's good news. Yeah, and they're, they're good lookers as well, aren't they? They are, they're very well presented, those books, yeah. With an introduction by one Nick Triplo, of course. And your book, Getting Carter, was reissued in a new paperback edition uh, last year as well. So we've talked an awful lot about Ted and his novels. I want to round this out a little bit by talking about um, two things, if you would, please. First is Yellow Submarine. And then if you could take that into Ted's television work and the stuff he did on Zedcars. Yeah, I mean, the the Yellow Submarine thing is interesting in that um, it, it put Ted in Soho in mm, the late 60s. 60s in the film industry which is you know that there is a link there if he's if he wasn't in so at that time in the you know in the dog and duck and in the french house and stuff rubbing right. shoulders with people like jack carter mm. it's questionable whether that you know that would that character would have emerged at least in quite the same way yeah um ted was um animation cleanup supervisor on yellow submarine and what that meant was because it was rushed, because there was a really limited budget, and this is kind of all on record, um, they they basically employed virtually every art student coming out of art college. In, yeah, in right, I see. I think at one point there were 200 artists drawing the Yellow Submarine, yeah. And obviously they were of differing standards. Their mm. work was a differing standard. So animation cleanup was the point at which every single right. cell of that animation went through a process of assessment and correction and changes and re redrawing, repainting, um, if necessary. And that Ted was that's was you Ted's need some you need a real artist for that. Yeah, his team were artists. Right. They weren't necessarily animators, but they were artists, mm. and they were taking. Heinz Edelman's original ideas and making right. sure that they were carried through into the final um, final animation. So it was hugely intense, 
really hard work. I mean, there was something like 250,000 cells for that film. Right. Each one of those had to be checked. Individually done. Individually. Yeah. Um, and they... I think Ted was pretty much, there was a small team right at the very end um, after everybody else had been laid off. And Ted was pretty much one of the last to leave the production. Right. Um, and that was obviously in 1968. Um, and at that point, pretty much you can trace the next thing that he did, significant thing that he did, was to start writing Jack's Return Home. Right. So there is that, there's a really direct link. It's not just a question of this is another yeah. element of his career. It yeah, all there kind is, of connects I mean, up. Yeah, I spoke um, with, with various people who were involved in the Yellow Submarine production. And, you know, they were talking about what Soho was like at the time. And the fact that the kind of vice industry, the porn industry, mm. the film industry, you know, no, it was all it was all hand in glove. Was the same thing mm. essentially. Mm. It's something that I don't think people appreciate so much now, but it was. It was just one world. Yeah, very much encapsulated like and, that. And enormously vibrant. I, I mean, there you know, films like Performance get mm. get it right, and there's a few others that perhaps get it right. But it, but it's rarely it's rare that you see that depicted in in a way mm. that that gives you that sense of what it, the vibrancy of that area and that period. Reminds me a little bit about the, the, the peeping Tom, you know, the film Yeah, and how it was kind of castigated. I mean, they sort of said, Oh, this is a dirty world and we don't really want to know much about it because critics didn't yeah. like it. Did they? Although this was a world, of course, that the newspaper men and the police and a lot of the uh, establishment were absolutely involved in yeah. at the time, did they? No. And I think, um, you know, there are people who know a huge amount about that that sort of stuff. You speak to Kathy mm. Underworth, um, Aidan McManus, who does the the kind of walking tours of London, yeah, kind of gangster sites and stuff. It, it, there's nothing. There's not much Aidan doesn't know about that area. Right, he kind of brings it to life. That's very interesting, though, because you mentioned Kathy Unsworth, and of course, it then feeds into Kathy's work as well, very much. Oh, totally, yeah. So this, this is the same. This is the ongoing story. Of where the senior side of life and and London in general, London public life, mix and mingle. Yeah, and the the, the way that that Kathy's able to kind of weave that into the fabric of her writing, it, she's peerless. I, I don't know anybody who does it in, in quite in quite no. as, uh, the same way. No, no, indeed, that's true. So when we come to um, Z Cars, I, I sort of this is an odd thing for me, you know, as, as a child and a very small child when Z Cars was on. I sort of remember it in the background and I think I obviously wasn't getting the themes. And then when you, I also think now there's a sort of nostalgic thing about that. So there's a sort of tendency to think it's something kind of cozy as you look back and yeah. the all British telly was cozy, but then it's really hard to imagine the idea of Ted working on something cozy. And um, how did he fit with, with other people's agendas at that time as well, writing for Zed cars? I mean, I, I watched them. I went to an archive and watched them because they're not they're not commercially available. Mm. Found copies of them in a film archive and what right. And I tried to watch them and think in terms of what it would have been like in 1976, right, right, to see those stories on prime time mid evening mm. viewing. And I still think 
Ted was pushing at boundaries, like for, for the BBC, that is. Yes, yes. I think I think independent television and obviously ITV was, was screening the Sweeney at nine o'clock on a Monday night. Mm. But for this to be, you know, two Mondays or Tuesdays at sort of 7.50 or whatever it was. Yeah. So and it was more family-oriented. Obviously, it, it the Sweeney was, was entirely the, adult. I mean, the first... Um, the, the first Ted Lewis um, episode, Zed Carr's episode, is called Prisoner. Right. And where one of the main characters um, is kidnapped by a villain. Yes, And it's right. one of those one-to-one episodes where it's pretty much all in one room mm. with a standoff between this uniformed copper and an escaped criminal. So you've got a real intensity there. There's a real intensi- intensity. And um, Keith Barron plays the criminal, um, and it culminates in him forcing the police officer to drink a bottle of whiskey. Right. And we're back to Ted and his drinking. Entirely borrowed from from Get Carter. Mm, Yeah. So he'd, he'd taken he'd taken that kind of conclusion, that kind of being forced to sort of drink yourself sick. Mm. Until you're ill, in, into prime time TV on on a, on a whatever it was Monday or Tuesday evening. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Can we actually say Ted was a functioning alcoholic? I mean, that's a term now. It wasn't a term at the time. Yeah, I mean, if 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 you look if you look at his output, mm. and you know there were three there were three Zedcast episodes, seventy six, seventy seven, and Ted's last. Um, the last series of Zedcast, which was in summer '78, right? Ted's yeah, was, Ted's was the first episode of that series, um, and it's such a good story. It's it's a story about a driver who inadvertently gets caught up in um, with a with a, a crime family where he's got the police on one side threatening to take him to court, and he's got the villains on the other side threatening. Right, right. So it's his dilemma. Yeah, right. So it's such a dilemma. Mm. Um, but, but to go back to your point, you know, when you consider that he was writing really good TV, and he was writing a, you know, GBH was yet to come. Yeah. At that point, so you look at that that sort of tail end of the seventies, and you think, well, actually, his, his novels weren't great. Bolt's not great. Jack Carter and the Mafia Pigeons not mm-hmm. great. Yeah, but the TV work that he was doing at that time was really good it is uh, it almost feels like he's sort of saying yeah look here i'm still here look at me this is still my writing yeah. this is- but but also you know he wanted to write a film he wanted to mm, be involved yeah. in, in in film and cinema and tv was you know getting his stories on tv was was no small thing no indeed and part of a step towards that exactly. that. but yeah. of course he didn't go on to have a normal life he yeah. died very shortly afterwards but but that's the sort of thing we're talking about. And if you read, I mean, he, there were other scripts. The, the, his 71 novel, Plender, was written. Mm. He scripted it for, um, there was a, a producer who was going to do, um, G.K. Chesterton mm. did um, a series of, uh, or a book called The Club of Queer Trades. Right. Which was the idea being that each member of the club had a trade or a, or a or a way of earning a living a profession that was individual and one off right and and the idea was that it would be a series of 
50 minute one hour tv programs which mm-hmm. showed each member of the club of queer trades and plender was going to be one of those as a black male. right and the, the script ted script for that um is almost plender note for note beat for beat that's interesting would that been maybe a bit too dark for the the time well, it didn't get made mm. it didn't it it ran into it ran into trouble as did again i mean it's Obviously, some people know, but Ted um, wrote um, episodes for Doctor Who that were never used. Yes, right, right. Um, and that was in in large part because he was simply too noir and too mm-hmm. dark a writer in the kind of post Mary Whitehouse era, because that was one of the big issues. With obviously, she's she's having a bit of a cultural resurgence inexplicably at the moment. But yes, I've noticed um, that. But that she she complained um, effectively to to change the tone of of yeah. Doctor Who, um, and Ted's writing for that it simply couldn't it it couldn't kind of rise above his his kind of inclination towards noir and and dark. Yeah, that that's curious. That's what I wanted to get at really because I was thinking about Z cars, you know, which you talk about a lot in the book, and how you've got to work to somebody else's agenda, and the TV yeah. agenda is very different. I mean. You've only got to read the books to know how dark they are. Yeah. And they're, and they're right in your face. They don't mess about at all. So it is interesting. That thing with Mary Whitehouse, that is an odd one. They seem to be saying that Mary Whitehouse got some things right, and so therefore she doesn't deserve to be looked on quite the way we, we thought of her. As a busybody and somebody who wanted to tell people what they could and couldn't watch, could and couldn't do. I, d- I don't know how that – the fact that she might have hit on some things that were right doesn't seem to me to be a good excuse for a woman who just – went out there to ban nearly everything under the sun just for the hell of it. So Yeah, and I and I think you have to you kind of look at people's motives really, don't you? What what yeah, why was absolutely. She what she was interested in, you know, and, and I think the, the 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 context and the motivation for it and you know the, the world that she was living in. Yeah. Um, well people don't like losing the world they think they know, do they? Even though it's an illusion. They don't they don't like change, I suppose that's essentially what I'm saying. But, no, but you know, it's it's like you know the the rose tinted view of of our past, mm. um, or or the attempt to kind of rose tint what wasn't remotely mm. rose tinted. Um, I think it's it's kind of one of the prevailing narratives at the moment, um, and I and I think it's yeah, it's very true. It's it's potentially quite damaging. I think it is. No, it worries me a lot. I think this nostalgic view of the past. I mean, that, you know, that, that takes you back to Get Carter, really. It takes you back to the novel. Because that, in a, in a lot of ways, is about looking at the past and looking at his generation and looking at yes. what they've done with the advantages post-war and saying, well, look, you've chucked it away. Mm. That, yeah. that, and that's where you, you kind of come back to, you know, this guy who's gone back to his hometown after X number of years. And and sort of finds it. He has pretty much nothing but contempt for it and for, for the it, people yeah. who are there and yeah. for what they've done with the opportunities they were given. Yeah. yeah. What's yeah. what are you doing now? What are you working on now? Um, I've got. Um, we we're talking about London Book Fair earlier. Right? We have got. Um, yeah. I've got a novel that's um, doing the rounds at the moment called um, Never Walk Away, right. which is um, set in the mid two thousands, post seven seven, in a kind of murky world between policing and intelligence right um full of paranoia and opportunism of people looking to make a fast bucket off the back of seven seven so if that rings any bells 
Entirely coincident. <laughs> how we've got into the mess we're in at the moment. Yeah, isn't it though? <laughs> so that's yeah. Um, I recently signed um, with uh, Phil Patterson at uh, Marjack Agency. So Phil's right. um, working on finding me a home for that at the moment. Oh well, good luck with that. Anyway, Nick, that's been fascinating. Thank you very much. It's great to see your insight into Ted Lewis. What? Just one last thing, I suppose. Actually, I should say. Um, what about? Um, do we need to do more? keep pushing Ted's reputation, if you like, or um, is this a train that's on, on track and it's going anyway? Do you know, do you know what? I, I do think about this and I have thought about it a lot because I've spent a lot of the last 12, 14 years trying to, you know, get where I want to get with, with, with Lewis and give him the profile that I thought he deserved. And the fact that his novels have been reviewed favorably in fact really well in virtually every broadsheet paper that never touched him the first time around. yeah yeah the fact that this bio that you know the, the biography you know people want to like people like it or don't like it that's up to them but the fact that it's there and that i've tried to do my best to mm. put him back in the limelight you know our first whole noir festival majored on lewis and, and gave him a profile so right. I, I mean I, I very much think that he's kind of attained something of perhaps what he should have had in his lifetime. Mm. And in, in that respect, that's kind of, that's, I won't say job done, but it, no, but it is a big achievement. Yeah. Absolutely. yeah it, it feels a bit more just, it feels a bit more just that he's, he's recognized as the influence that he clearly is. And of course there's now the visitor center, the Ted Lewis visitor center in Barton on Humber. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, I don't know what that's doing. I don't really have a lot to do with that, but it's um again, you know, that's, that's fairly recent. So well, I will visit one day. Nick, that's been fantastic. Thank you very much. Yeah, cheers, Paul. Well, I really hope you enjoyed that. I had a fascinating chat, I think, with Nick Triplo there about Getting Carter, Ted Lewis and the Birth of Brit Noir, and these two new novels, also published by uh, No Exit Press, Billy Raggs and Jack Carter's Law. Um, just to make it easier, I've put some uh, a link on the program notes to the publisher, and if you want to order the books, you can get them there. I'll be back very shortly with a new interview. Um, I'm going to bring you Don Winslow before too long, and uh, I'll just say now, thank you very much for listening. Bye for now. <laughs>